The scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place, places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, Jesus is confronting some scribes. Two weeks ago, we met a curious scribe, a scribe who Jesus said was not far from the kingdom of God, but by and large, the scribes, along with all the leaders in Jerusalem at the time, opposed Jesus. They were seeking to have him killed. And here in this passage, Jesus is giving a warning to everyone who's around listening concerning the scribes. And what he says about them essentially is this. They're only in it for themselves. They're only in it for themselves. Yes, they have great theological knowledge. Yes, they are revered in the community, but they are glory thieves. They're glory thieves. This passage, and so to a large degree, the heart of this sermon is about the frightening but all too frequent destruction that occurs when glory thieves are in positions of power in the church. But the fact of the matter is, we are all to one degree or another glory thieves. We all seek to rob God of the glory that is due his name when we seek glory for ourselves instead. When the praise of man means more to us than the well-done, good and faithful servant that we'll hear from the Lord one day, that's when you know that you are being a glory thief. So what I hope to address this morning is both how, you know, how we can know that we're trying to rob God of his glory, how we know we're being a glory thief, and what to do about it. But I also feel a burden to call us as a church to be eagerly praying and discerning and demanding and calling into positions of leadership at Grace Church people who pursue God's glory and not their own. And will use their power because there is power inherent in leadership positions in the church. Power that is primarily by virtue of position, by virtue of knowledge, by virtue of influence. Who will use that power to bless and not exploit the church. And finally, I want to show us the path to true glory because God is concerned that we have an opportunity to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Not all glory is bad. The glory that God gives in his Son ought to be desired deeply, is in fact worth living and sacrificing for. So four things we're going to look at this morning. First, our hunger for glory. Second, the abuse of power. Third, a damnable disconnect. And then fourth, the path to true glory. Our hunger for glory, the abuse of power, a damnable disconnect, 
and the path to true glory. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that that you will help us understand from this passage where we each are living at times as glory thieves, seeking that our will and not your will be done and seeking that the others around us would serve us rather than we serve them. Lord, help us to, by your spirit, through your word, be convicted and, and be drawn to you that there might not be a disconnect between the truth that we claim to know and the way in which we live. But Lord, we pray especially that you would make us aware as leaders as those who are being called into leadership and as a congregation who is um, required to identify, nominate, and ultimately elect leaders. Well, Lord, would you raise up leaders in this church who are living for your glory and not their own? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, our hunger for glory. The scribes in this passage hunger for glory. You see it in everything that Jesus says. Let's take a look at the passage again. Jesus in his teaching said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. So scribes would wear long flowing prayer shawls. They were white because white was a a color of clothing, of garment that was preserved for those to be held in highest esteem. They had tassels that were long and flowing as well. So it really mattered to them that they were set apart from the common folk. They wanted to be seen as those who are worthy of honor, worthy of glory. Jesus goes on and says, and they like greetings in the marketplaces. Now that was not like, hey, how's it going, scribe? Not at all. Scribes were to be greeted with um, titles such as rabbi or father or even master. And people were expected to stand and stop whatever they were doing whenever a scribe walked by, and they lived for that. They expected that as they strutted around in their white, long, flowing robes, expected to hear people stand and give them honor by what they said. Uh, have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honors that feast. And so, places of honor feast. So, you know, in a, in a Jewish synagogue, the um, the, the, the container, the chest holding the Torah would be up front and there would be a chair or a few chairs sitting in front of the, of the chest looking out at the congregation and that's where they expected to be able to sit. The place of greatest honor in the synagogue. Whenever a feast was taking place, you know, a feast would involve an opportunity for whoever was hosting the feast to kind of show off and parade who was there at his feast Remember the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 7, where the woman enters into Simon's house, a woman who had lived a sinful life, and you think, well, how in the world could she just walk in? Well, the reason why is because it was common for the door, if you will, to be left open so that people could walk into the courtyard, common folk, and, and circle around the table and see who was seated there, and especially note who was seated in the place of honor right next to the host, and that's where the scribes expected to be. Even before the host's own parents, they had to be further down the table. The scribes expected to be right there. And then, of course, uh, halfway through verse 40, they make a pretense, and for a pretense, make long prayers. And so, look at how spiritual I am by the way in which I pray. And Jesus condemns their hunger for glory. They will receive the greater condemnation. 
He condemns their hunger for glory. They were glory thieves. These religious leaders, like these were the guys who knew more about the word of God than anyone else. Their preeminent concern should have been that God be glorified in all things. And yet what they wanted more than anything was glory for themselves. Hard truth, we're all to varying degrees more like the scribes than we would care to admit. We want glory for ourselves. How do you know? How do you know when you're seeking glory for yourself and seeking to rob God of the glory that is due his name? Well, one way is when it is hard for you to imagine that it's better that his will, not your will, be done. Think about how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be glorified. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we pray that prayer, but we, every one of us, struggle to live that out. More often than not, I struggle because I think it would be better that my will and not God's will be done. And what I'm doing is reversing and twisting the Lord's prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, hallowed be my name. My will and not your will be done. My kingdom be built on earth. I'm robbing God of glory. Whenever I I struggle to believe that it is better that God's will and not my will be done. We also are living as glory thieves whenever we find ourselves feasting on the approval of others and feeling as though we're perishing without it. Now, it's important that I qualify that statement because we all need to hear people give us words of affirmation. We all need to have people in our life who are saying, I value you, I love you, I appreciate what God is doing in you, I see his fruit being born in you, and I praise God for that. Especially our children as they're being raised in our home need to hear words of affirmation from us as parents. And so we cannot and must not deny those words of affirmation, words of encouragement to our kids, to one another. Right? Like part of building one another up and encouraging one another involves words. And so... We need, we need to be about that. But as adults, when we feel as though we can't live without the praise of man, when it matters more to us than anything else that people see what we have done and all that we have accomplished, now we've crossed over into feasting on the praise of man wanting other people to glorify our name as if we could take credit for anything good that we've done. And then, finally, you know you're being a glory thief when you're willing to use others to get glory for yourself. When you're willing to bypass them, when you're willing to trample them, when you're willing to use them in order to get glory for yourself. We Every one of us are glory thieves. We're more like the scribes than we care to admit. Now, Jesus also tells us in this passage how glory thieves that have power, that are in positions of authority, of influence, 
can abuse that power by exploiting the vulnerable. You see in this text, look back again with me at verse 40. These scribes were to beware of because they devour widows' houses. Now, what's, what's going on there? What, what's happening? Well, there are two things that could have been happening there. One, it could have been that they were sponging off widows. Because it was true that scribes, by and large, relied on the hospitality of others. And so, one of the things that may have been going on here is that these scribes were overstaying their, their, uh, their, their time with these widows. They were frequently returning, expecting them, because culturally it was expected that you would show hospitality to others. You know, just taking advantage of them. It was also possible that one of the things that they were doing was taking advantage of them as they were seeking to manage their estate after their husband had died. Scribes were looked to. They were, they were lawyers as well. These religious leaders were involved in every aspect of the people's lives. And so widows would look to scribes to faithfully manage their estate as they were grieving the loss of their husband. And these scribes would take advantage of them in that place of great vulnerability. They were abusing their power. These revered religious leaders were exploiting vulnerable members of their community. And I wish I could say it hasn't happened since. But it has. I just finished reading this week Diane Langberg's book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. It is one of the best books I've read in a while. I think not only every leader and prospective leader in the church, but every member of a church should read that book so that we can have a better sense of what godly use of power versus selfish use of power looks like. Langberg, broadly speaking, speaking, says, power is being abused whenever the vulnerable are being exploited. It's such a simple and cutting definition. Power is being abused whenever the vulnerable are being exploited. Spiritual power, she says, spiritual power that is power that's primarily that of influence, right? I stand up here talking to you every Sunday. By virtue of doing so, I have influence, and that influence is a form of spiritual power. I've been to seminary. I have theological knowledge. That theological knowledge and expertise is a form of spiritual power. Langberg says that spiritual power is being abused whenever it is used to control, manipulate, or intimidate others in order to meet one's own needs. It's exactly what was happening with the scribes, and it continues to happen down to this very day. I mean, just we, we know the headlines. We've read them. The purpose of power, the purpose of influence and authority that God gives to people is always given to bless That is the purpose of power. That's always true. No matter what the setting, in church, out of church, in government, whatever it may be, in the home, the purpose of power is always given to bless, but that is especially true in the church. God grants power and authority to leaders in his church in order to build his kingdom. And that power and authority is abused whenever it's used by leaders to build their own kingdom. What does this mean for us at Grace Church? 
<clears throat> the church in America has been hit by scandal after scandal. Power has been abused. The vulnerable have been exploited. But here's the thing. No church ever planned it that way. No church ever set up to have that kind of tragedy happen within its walls. So how can we ensure that that doesn't happen here? We must make sure that the current and rising leaders at Grace Church are people who pursue God's glory and not their own. Now is the time for the leadership baton to begin to be transferred to the rising generation of leaders at Grace Church. That is true across every ministry. Discipleship, outreach, fellowship, finance, facilities, mercy, congregational care. Men and women are needed who are gifted and called to lead and to serve in those areas. But it is also time for the baton of leadership to be passed to the next generation of elders and deacons. For that, we need men, because the Bible says, and we believe, that God calls men to lead in those roles. And so we need men who are first and foremost followers of Jesus Christ. We need men who are members of this church and are already serving this church and demonstrating the gifts that the office requires. We need men who are Presbyterian. You don't have to be a Presbyterian to be a member of this church. One of the strengths of this church is that we do not let secondary matters of doctrine divide us. But our elders and deacons must affirm our system of doctrine. I cannot overstate how important it is that this process begin now. The time is now for the next generation of elders and deacons to begin to be identified and developed. The time is now for their call to be discerned and the burden of leadership be passed to those who will lead Grace Church into future faithfulness and fruitfulness. But let me go back to that first qualification. They must be men who are followers of Christ. If Christ is not being formed in the man, such that it is evident in his leading and serving that it is not his glory, but Christ's that is being pursued, then that man must not lead. If he does, this is what may result, what we're seeing in our passage this morning. How do you know beforehand? How do you know before you nominate a man to be an elder or deacon, that he is, in fact, someone who is pursuing God's glory and not his own. Where are such men, both formed and identified by you members, who are responsible to nominate them and ultimately to elect them? And the answer is primarily in our growth groups. That is where shepherding gifts and serving gifts Leadership gifts can be identified as within the small groups of this church, people have an opportunity to notice those gifts, more importantly, to notice the character of the man. Is Christ being formed in this man? Listen, we don't get around each other as much as we can. You don't necessarily see that here. As great as it will be to have fellowship out on the lawn starting next Sunday, you're not going to be able to adequately discern the character of the man. 
and whether or not he should be nominated to be an elder or deacon in the church. Our best shot, quite frankly, is in the context of these growth groups. And so be there not only for your own development as a follower of Jesus Christ, but so that you can begin to identify who God is calling to office. Because you're seeing the fruit of Christ being formed in them right before your very eyes. The leadership baton at Grace Church must be passed to people of character who seek the glory of Christ and not their own, lest power be abused and the vulnerable be exploited. We all, by nature, are glory thieves. Glory thieves with power are tempted to abuse it. And third, we need to see in this passage the damnable disconnect. A damnable disconnect. There is a disconnect between what the scribes thought they knew and how they actually lived. Again, they knew so much about God. But for all their knowledge, they did not know God. If they had, if they had and were experiencing in their lives what it meant to be loved by God and to love him in return, it would have been evident in their character. It would have been observable. It would have been seen. There would have been true fruit, sweet and nourishing fruit that's born out of a life of true godliness, the the fruit that springs from the soil of a gentle and lowly spirit that is itself rooted in the gentle and lowly heart of Christ, not the toxic waste of self-aggrandizement. Do not assume that great theological knowledge And the appearance of deep devotion spring from a heart that is grounded in Christ. Look for the fruit. Look for the fruit. Look for the character of Christ being formed in the leader or the potential leader of the church. So there was a disconnect here between what the scribes thought they knew about God and how they actually lived. And Jesus says that disconnect is damnable. They will receive the greater condemnation. In Luke chapter 11, we read about the woes that Jesus pronounces upon the scribes and the Pharisees. You can go back and read that for yourself. But that woe is a curse of God that's being called down. Jesus is pronouncing curse from God upon these people. Woe unto you in Luke 11 for all these various things that they do. That is the greater condemnation that Jesus is pointing to here in this passage. And in a way, we don't see it directly, but he's linking back to what the prophet Ezekiel wrote in Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. And then jumping down to verse 4 of Ezekiel 34. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Jesus says of his shepherds, if they shepherd in that way as glory thieves, they will receive the greater condemnation. 
But we can't miss the fact, and we heard it in the confession of sin earlier today, that we are all called to seek and show justice and mercy to the vulnerable. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. There can't be a disconnect between what we profess to know and believe and how we actually live. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, we will be judged for whether or not we offered him a cup of cold water when we pass by the one in need. That disconnect is damnable, but it is redeemable. It is forgivable. I know that because Jesus is saying these things right in front of the scribes. You ever thought about that? Uh, One of two things could be going on there. He could be just like slamming them. These scribes, they will receive the greater condemnation within earshot, in their face. Or, Or, he could have been giving them an opportunity to repent. He was telling them the truth. But they were still standing there. They were still alive. There were still breath in their lungs. And the one who could forgive them was standing right in front of them. The one who, as we'll see later, heals the disconnect was right there. And the same is true for us, of course, right now. As the word of God is proclaimed, the opportunity for that disconnect that we all experience to one degree or another can find us forgiving and redeeming in the person of Jesus Christ. Finally, let's look at the path to true glory. How do we close the gap between what we know and how we live? By looking to the one whom we must know. Know in the relational sense of the word, not in the knowledge of sense of the world. Not, not knowing doctrine, I know so much scripture, but knowing the one to whom scripture points. Knowing Jesus. In the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, in the Ten Commandments, the law of God, which focused so much on loving and serving God, but also on loving and serving neighbor, begins with grace. It begins with a demonstration of God's unmerited, unfailing, covenantal love to his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have redeemed you, Scripture says. I have called you by name. You are mine. The same is true for every Christian. You have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are no longer a member of the kingdom of darkness. You are now part of the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That is entirely by grace. The challenge then is, do you just know about that? Or do you know the one who has effected that rescue for you? You see, Jesus, he knew what to do with his power in order to bless. 
Jesus, who had all authority in heaven and earth, set it aside. Jesus, in his flesh, took on our vulnerability. Jesus gave himself over to these wolves who were in power and was willingly exploited by them for your good and mine, that we might have forgiveness, grace, and the promise of life everlasting. It's as we continue to look to Jesus and and let all of our growing knowledge about him lead to greater devotion to him as we come before him and experience more and more of what it means to be loved by him. It's then that we move from being those who are glory thieves to those who gladly give all glory to Jesus. And in so doing, find our greatest joy. I love this passage from 1 Peter. We'll, we'll end here. This is in 1 Peter 1. Peter talks there of how we are often grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith may result and praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we talked back, you know, 2019, I think we went through 1 Peter. We talked then about the fact, I'm sure you remember, it's two years ago. We talked then about the fact that this glory that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter is, yes, the glory that is revealed as the glory of Christ is reflected in our faith, but it is also the well-done, good and faithful servant of, of God giving us an opportunity to reflect something of the glory of Christ because of the work that's been accomplished in us by him. That's glory worth living for right there. The glory of Christ reflected in you. Peter goes on to tell us that now we are able to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because Christ is being formed in you. In the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, what ought to be happening is that we're able to look and see more of Christ in that person. Not just Christ's conduct, but something of Christ's glory. Because that person has been looking into the glorious gospel and seeing the glorious face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What will be the result the glory of Christ in you. The glory of Christ in you. Paul talks in Colossians 1. He refers to the glory of Christ as our hope. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12, he says this, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, the Lord Jesus glorified in you, in us, and us in him. May it be that by God's grace, we are on that path as individuals, as prospective leaders and existing leaders, and as a church into the next generation, that our ambition is that Christ be glorified in us. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge again the ways in which we have sought to rob you of your glory, 
Lord, I pray that you would be working by your spirit in each one of us such that our great ambition is for you to be glorified as you work greater and deeper faith in us and transformation into your likeness. Lord, help us to believe that it is in doing so that we will find our greatest joy and ultimately the glory of hearing you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, may it be that that is what we long to hear and not the praise of man. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.